Okay, I think we perhaps we should start. What is this path of awakening all about? What is this path of mindfulness all about? So tonight I want to examine, in a sense, those two questions and how it relates to another question, how do we want to live our lives? So I'm going to try and weave the talk around these three elements. What is the path of awakening about? That's a good question. Um, As you heard me say last night, the Buddhist path, its trajectory is aimed at awakening, waking up, as the Buddha says, to the way things are, yatabhutam in Pali, the way they actually are, not the way we would like them to be, but the way they actually are. And the way they actually are, you heard me talk about last night a little bit, so I'm going to expand on something I said last night. And what they are in Pali is sabi sankara nicca, which means all conditioned phenomena are impermanent. Sabi sankara dukkha, all conditioned phenomena are dukkha, all conditioned phenomena are unsatisfactory. Sabi dhamma anatta, which means all phenomena are not self. Now the last one's a little bit cryptic and we'll need some going into. Perhaps even if we don't cover that this evening, we'll do it in one of the other evenings. All conditioned phenomena are impermanent. That means everything, absolutely everything, is impermanent that we encounter. Conditioned phenomena is just a thing of saying one thing depends on another. One thing changes, another thing changes. The Buddha, in one of his discourses, very clearly says, this happens, that happens. This ceases to happen, that ceases to happen. His is a causally conditioned universe. Everything that happens in it happens through causes. Everything that happens to us happens through causes. Nothing happens out of nothing is the Buddha's tale. Now, impermanence, with the caveat, as I mentioned last night, of those things which change for our good, when the headache goes away, when the toothache stops, when the the job changes for the better, when these things happen, they're for our good and we don't notice them. We actually embrace those forms of changes. However much change that we encounter in our lives, we're very deeply resistant to, particularly in the changes that we see around those who are close to us, who we're involved in relationship with, be they friends, family, loved ones, spouses, partners. This is often where we are confronting change that we don't like. The last thing in the world we often like is for our partner to change on us, to become different, to actually manifest different qualities, to like different things from you, to dislike things that you like. These are things that we find very hard, very hard psychologically, emotionally, to take on board. So there's a deep emotional resistance often to the embracing of change. Change and this embracing of change is one of the things that the Buddha is recommending 
This is part of the path of mindfulness, the embracing of change, the welcoming of change, the inevitability of it and the acceptance of the inevitability of change of all sorts. The world is continuously changing, the world around us, politically, geographically, you know, even the oldest human artifacts continue to disintegrate and we have to try and go through all kinds of convolutions of preservation to try and preserve the things that are very ancient in the human world, in human culture and civilization. The Himalayas, as most of you know, continue to rise a little bit every year. You know, they don't remain the same. So nothing around us remains the same. Um, Although there's one very peculiar one we think often does remain the same. And this seems very strange. It's actually related to this last element, you know, all phenomena are not self. Well, our self, everything is changing. And sometimes, I don't know how you feel, I haven't kind of done a census with you yet, ask questions, get you to ask questions. But this is not often a deeply difficult thing to assent to, that everything is changing, certainly not intellectually. But there's a funny thing that often goes on, which is everything is changing, but not me. (laughs) I'm not changing. I'm the same. (laughs) There's this often sense of there being some kind of unchanging phenomena within us, which we call self and identify as self. So it seems very strange, doesn't it, why we might embrace, even just intellectually, let alone, but not necessarily, on an experiential base. We might embrace change on this big sense of the universal, but we certainly don't embrace change for ourselves. And actually, I would say we don't embrace change on very much of an existential level a lot of the time. And here I just want to mention something very obvious, the ways that we get upset when something doesn't work, something is lost, something is broken. When these things happen, there is often great outbursts of anger and rage. I always think of Basil Fawlty beating his car when it won't start. Yeah, and some of you, obviously from other countries, might not know this. This is a, a very popular comedy program in Britain in the 70s. Um, and the character, main character is rather hyper-neurotic, and his car won't start at some point, and he starts beating it with a stick, <laughs> as if it's doing something to him. So there is this element where lots of emotional outbursts occur because things just don't happen the way that we want. You know, the change doesn't go our way. So we are deeply, often existentially and experientially resistant to the changes, even on the, on the ordinary, on the very mundane levels of our existence. And of course then there's the big changes, which I mentioned last night, which we certainly don't like, We might have to embrace them, but we certainly don't like them. And these are old age, sickness, and eventually death. The American magazine Tricycle, quite a few years ago, ran a little spoof movie poster. Some of you might have seen it, which said, you know, like they do on the, when they're advertising films and movies, coming to you soon, old age, sickness, and death. (laughs) 
<laughs> I think that really brings it home. These are not these are not avoidable. These are existential issues which we all have to deal with. They're about our impermanence, our own finitude, our own mortality. The great Japanese thinker, Dogen, who was the founder of the Soto Zen school, said that the awakening experience was nothing other than the living of change. That was what awakening was. It was the ability to live change in its total, you know, totally embracing it not rejecting one iota of the change that occurs in our world. However, we find most change deeply unsatisfactory. So all conditioned phenomena therefore become dukkha for us. When it doesn't remain the same, when it doesn't remain permanent, when that person who you live with, care for, changes in ways that you dislike, often that becomes deeply unsatisfactory for you. I'm sure most of us must have been there in this situation, even with simple things. I I thought you liked that. No, I don't. (laughs) Well, you did two weeks ago. (laughs) And things like this, you get conversations arising of that sort. Um, And the changes that are occurring when we don't embrace them, well, actually they inflict themselves on us anyway. Even if we try to create permanent, stable ideas of the way that we live, then have you noticed that change erupts into it at some point in time? It's like trying to build your house on shifting sand. The change itself will manifest, no matter how deeply you've tried to hold on and create something which is permanent. What the Buddha is saying here is there are no permanent structures. There are no permanent structures, including you. This is part of the content of the awakening experience, is beginning to live that, as I say, embrace it, to accept it. To know that this world is a world of flux. In another piece, which I'll quote to you fully, because I'm going to use this in probably a number of evenings, the Buddha talks about his own motivation for his quest for what he was trying to do. In a very deeply personal passage here, out of the Pali Canon, which is the kind of main body, the most ancient body of material we have that's come down to us, I translated this passage, which comes out of a very old part of the texts, which is something called the Sutta Nipata, and probably very, very closely mirrors some of the Buddha's own speech patterns and discourse. And he says this, he says, Fear comes to one who embraces violence. Look at people quarreling. Let me tell you of the strong agitation that I felt, seeing people struggling like fish in shallow water with enmity towards one another. I became fearful I wanted a safe place to shelter, but I saw that the world lacked substance and that there was not one part of it that was changeless. He goes on to say, Seeing people trapped in mutual enmity, I grew dissatisfied. Then I saw buried in their hearts a barb, like a fishhook, a hook, that was difficult to perceive. It is this barb that 
impels people to run in all directions. Once it is pulled out, the running ceases, as does the inevitable exhaustion that accompanies it. Now the barb here is the barb of craving, which we'll get to talk about as we go through. The actual diagnosis of what the Buddha calls our ultimate sense of dissatisfaction is a sense of craving. But notice that phrase, not one part of this world is changeless. There is no safe haven. There is nowhere that we can actually run to for ultimate safety if we're looking for permanence. Now, I'm not saying this to make you miserable, because I see a lot of faces going (laughs) out here. This is the kind of realism that the Buddha was bringing to his teaching. He was not into the consolations of the unchanging, of the idea that there was some permanent entity, some permanent structure that we could escape to at some point, either within our lives or even post-mortem, um, that was an unchanging reality. Throughout history, the Buddha hasn't been the only person to point this out. The Greek pre-Socratic philosopher Heraclitus, who some of you might know about, also talked about this as being the fundamental condition of the world, that the world is in flux, it's evanescent. Yeah. It's like foam on the sea, It's a rising and falling and a rising and falling. He talks about, for example, he says, we can never step into the same river twice. One of his students actually said to him, actually, excuse me, Heraclitus, you can never step into the same river once. (laughs) It's not the same. (laughs) It's always flowing. The German philosopher in the 19th century, Friedrich Nietzsche, also talked about change and has said the history of philosophy and religions has been the revenge against time. That everything has been looking for some permanent structure. Even the very Greek word phenomena, which is where we derive our word, was a derogatory term. It meant unreal. Anything that was a phenomena that wasn't permanent was unreal. Yet we live phenomenal existences in a phenomenal world. We are changing entities, living in changing worlds. In every dimension it is changing. However, one of the things perhaps that we crave, this is part of the craving in our hearts, is looking for some permanence, some certainty, something we can cling to, something we can hold on to that actually is not part of the changing universe, the changing world. The Buddha realistically says there is no such entity. There is no such entity we can cling to at all. The phenomenal world is change. The phenomenal self is change. You are a verb. You're not a thing. You are a process. That is all. And as a result of this, of course, we experience fear, frustration, dissatisfaction, all the things that come with the world not being the way that we want it to be. So dukkha arises. Now dukkha, this is an interesting word. 
I only dealt a little bit with it last night, but the word dukkha in the Pali language is derived from two dimensions. You can hear it said, you know, kind of two syllables of a dukkha, dukkha. The word du means something which is unpleasant, unsatisfactory. It can mean dirty as well. Um, the word ka means space. So a literal translation of this word could be a dirty space or place to be in. An unpleasant, unhappy place or space to be in. And dukkha is the Buddha's diagnosis of much of the human condition. This is what we spend a lot of our time on, is dukkering. You know, as I was saying last night, slowly rubbing our arms against brick walls, engaged in habits... Um, which we continuously repeat. Our search for pleasures and certainties and things which are supposedly going to make us happy, we keep repeating almost in the sheer disbelief that they don't make us happy. <laughs> you know, that, if you notice this, even with things like addictions and that, and I'm not talking about the, the major ones, but the addictions to doing certain things, the habits that we have, you keep on doing it just thinking, well, the next time I do, perhaps it will make me happy. <laughs> or I will get some satisfaction from it. And it's almost as if we, there is this sense of astonishment and disbelief that that is not going to ever be the case. Yeah. Other derivations of this word, dukkha, that were, you can find that the Buddha was playing on in his usage of this term, which, as you know from last night, hopefully if you remember, is usually translated as suffering, but it's a much more of a spectrum word which covers all of our experience. All of our experience. The moment we try to cling to something, to change something uh, in clinging, then it becomes dukkha for us. It becomes unsatisfactory, particularly if it doesn't go the way that we want it to. Yeah. It becomes a form of dukkha. Other things it's referred to was, for example, the hole in a wheel into which an axle fitted. And this wheel, you know, the hole in the wheel was actually encased in dirt and grease and grit. And it went round and round and round. And it was meant to refer to how the wheel of Sangsara, something I'll come to in a second the wheel of samsara refuses to run smoothly. The wheel of our lives refuses to run smoothly. It wobbles all over the place. Actually, interestingly enough, the word sati, which is the word translated as mindfulness, means not to wobble, (laughs) to hold steady, to hold steady the mind. So, we've got some images here. We'll give you one last image, which comes out of... Again, ancient texts which the Buddha plays on. The word dukkha was often used to refer to also a puncture wound made by an arrow. When pulled out, it would leave a hole which would then superate and become extremely nasty. Um, So I think you've got some good graphic images to conjure with here. Superating wounds to wheels that don't run smoothly to dirty places to be in. I think they all give you perhaps an impression of what the Buddha is trying to get at by this term dukkha. The fact that things happen often is dukkha, that they cannot be avoided. 
That is often what we refer to as dukkha. But then there is this second arrow, which I also referred to last night, which we deliberately, almost willfully place in on the second arrow, on the second thing that hits us. We have the first thing, which is the thing that happens to us. Then we have the anger, the fear, the resentment, all of the other emotional qualities that often are trying to reject the what is happening to us at this moment in time. And I'm sure we've all been there in these experiences and had these experiences of something happening and then we exacerbate it, make it far worse by railing against it. It's almost as if the universe has singularly pointed you out for dissatisfaction. It has chosen you. It is your turn today. And something happens and then we are cursing the universe in a sense for what has actually happened to us. So, dukkha is an element of our experience which is there but also we are implicated in, deeply, deeply implicated in in producing. The Buddha, in in the very beginning of what is known as the Four Noble Truths or the Ennobling Truths, as a much better translated, the Ennobling Truths, truths which ennoble us by inquiring into them and trying to understand them, says there is dukkha. This is the first of the Ennobling Truths. This is not a belief statement. This is something to be understood, that there is dukkha. that it is part of our experience it's deeply enmeshed it's part of the warp and woof of our ordinary lives the second is that there is a cause to this dukkha this is the second of the ennobling truths and that cause is identified as something called tanha craving an unquenchable and by its very nature unquenchable thirst the word tanha literally in Pali means thirst Something that can never be satisfied. We can never be satisfied. Have you ever noticed that? I often do this as a little game. Here's a little statement for you. If only I had, I would... Then we have a blank, and you can fill in your own little blank here. I would be happy. How long do you think that lasts for? It doesn't last very long, does it? And then there's probably something circulating around that then goes, if only I had, I would be happy. What we're talking about here with the craving that underlies the dukkha of experience is a craving for something which would be a terminal point for all of our searches in this world, that would give us the happiness, the satisfaction the contentment, perhaps, the ease with which, for which we're looking in this world. But, particularly, and the most obvious, is when we're caught on the material rat race, wanting, craving material things, you know, in the kind of mythology that they're going to provide us with, this, with some happiness, with some lasting, unchanging happiness, then... Of course, we're on literally a treadmill. We're running around a treadmill. Um, We will always be on it. Oscar Wilde, in one of his plays, once said, you know, there's nothing worse than not getting what you want than getting what you want. (laughs) 
don't think he's being cynical. <laughs> I think he's really indicating very much this kind of feeling that we often have. That even when we get that which we want, there is somehow, it's still imbued with a sense of not being quite right, somehow. Not being quite perfect. And then what will happen to it? Well, it will go and change on you anyway. It will actually change. So these are the first two elements of what the Buddha really talks about as being the way things are. These are the way they are. They are impermanent and they're dukkha. And much of the dukkha, much of the dissatisfaction, let's use that as a word for translating it, much of the dissatisfaction that arises, arises because of the very nature of change. Because they are impermanent. And finally we have this one, which I'll spend a lot more time on, but not this evening, We have this final mark of existence, these characteristic marks, he calls them tilakana, which actually means three marks that characterize existence. The final one is their not-self. Now, in terms of us, this is much more understandable. What it's saying is there is no fixed element within any of us, which is an unchanging element. There is no kind of unchanging you. There's not a little package for example, with John stamped on it um, within me, buried in somewhere inside this body or brain or anything of that sort. There are only changing elements within. Everything that constitutes you and I is process. Everything that is here is process. Everything we see around us, and this is why it says all phenomena are not self, also lack any sense of fixed existence within them. So what we have here, the kind of world that the Buddha is offering us, the world view, and he says it's to be investigated, not to be believed in, the kind of world view he is at least opening us up to investigate, or opening us up for the possibility of investigating, is a dynamic world, a world of change and flux, a world of process, not a world of static things. What is even more important about this element of not-self, and some people I know are horrified by this idea when they first come to it um, in Buddhist circles, the idea that there is nothing fixed within me, um, can seem quite a horrifying prospect because there's, you know, where is the real me? I mean, so many religious traditions and philosophies through for centuries have sought out the real you. you know, what is the real me? The, the fixed, underlying, unchanging you. Well, the Buddha's saying there isn't one. Um, and I wonder if you'd want a real you if it was there anyway. I came across a... Um, a, a card, actually, and I sent it to a friend who was exactly named as the character on the card, which was a joke card. It was a little card that says, Stanley went to the Himalaya to find his real self. Some of you might have seen this. There's a card. There's a little backpacker trekking up one of the mountains with his rucksack on and his glasses on and everything else, only to meet somebody standing at the top of the mountain who looks exactly like him in a pinstripe suit holding a briefcase. <laughs> Yeah. So you might not want to encounter your real self. 
So what the world, as I say, the Buddha's offering, including ourselves, we're not apart from the rest of the phenomenal universe, is that we are a changing phenomena. And actually, from the Buddhist perspective, this is good news. Because if there was some unchanging part of you, literally, and that unchanging part, for example, was unpleasant or nasty or horrible or whatever, well, you could never change it. You're stuck with it forever. It's only because we have a psychology of transformation based on this, and this process that we're engaging in mindfulness is a psychology of transformation, that that transformation can come about because we are not a fixed substance whatsoever. That there is written into the way that we are change already. Even if we don't nudge the change in the way that we want it to go, which is what this awakening process is, then we will change anyway. We will change physically and we will change mentally. There will be not one element that will remain the same within us. So the Buddha is trying to recommend us to change in a particular direction. And that particular direction is, once we've started to at least appreciate that this is what characterizes existence, is to move from unpleasant and unwholesome ways of being in this world into living in much more pleasant and wholesome ways. For those of you who are not aware of this, I'll just lay these out, because he speaks about three unwholesome roots of existence that we can live. In fact, they're mainly the ones that manifest in most of our lives. These are greed, aversion, and delusion. These are the three unwholesome dimensions. These are what drive habitual patterns of reactiveness. Greed, aversion, and delusion. Delusion obviously being the one the other two arise out of. The greed and the aversion. Delusion is not knowing and not wanting to know the way things are. Aversion is not wanting things to happen to me that I don't want to happen. Trying to avoid people, trying to avoid certain situations, trying to avoid unpleasant things happening to myself. Whereas the greed is everything that goes with the psychology of acquisition, which includes people as well as things, which includes all of our attempting to hold on to stuff, grasping. I, <laughs> I once, uh, I've quoted this a few times since it happened, uh, a couple of years back I was uh, in my garden doing a little bit of gardening and I heard a wonderful little piece of, I don't know, clinging, grasping going on between neighbours. Uh, one neighbour was asking another neighbour if they could borrow something, and the other neighbour replied and said, I couldn't possibly lend you that, I don't even use it myself. <laughs> Sometimes it's good eavesdropping, you get good material for these things. <laughs> um, but this is a typical example of holding on, clinging to things. You know, just really attempting to hold on to them, entrapping ourselves by holding on. So greed, aversion, and delusion. This is what's called sangsara. Remember I used this word. Sangsara is a nice Pali word again. Um, It means to go round in circles. Circular existence. 
And in the traditions, the more religious traditions out of Buddhism that have come down to us, this very much means the cycle of birth, death and rebirth. Psychologically, it much more means a sense of ending up in the same place, again and again and again and again, or something very similar. Ever had that feeling of deja vu? Of feeling that you're making the kind of same mistakes that you made quite a few years ago? Ending up in the same places? Well, this is sangsara. This is the world of habitual responsiveness or reactiveness. Ending up in the same place again and again and again and again. Until you can break free of it. Now the breaking free of it is by the development and the psychology which is rooted in the three wholesome dimensions of our experience, which are generosity, friendliness, and understanding. As you can see, they're the complete antithesis of greed, aversion, and delusion. So instead of greed, we have generosity, the open hand. What is also known as chaga, the kind of giving up things here. Instead of aversion, we have friendliness. And I'll speak much, much more about that. That's very, very important. One of the things that's going on in this practice, in this mindfulness that we're engaging, is a radical act of befriending ourselves. Starting to befriend ourselves. To make peace with ourselves. A radical form of acceptance as well about who we are at this moment in time. Now even in the instructions I've been giving you throughout the day, the little prompts at the beginning of the sessions, one of the things you'll probably notice is bringing yourself back kindly, in a kindly way, to the breath. Not clinging or holding on to the breath and do violence to your mind, do violence to yourself. Not getting into forms of self-critique that I can't do this because my attention won't stay with the breath. It will wander off quite frequently, often every couple of seconds sometimes in the beginning stages. So we have to befriend ourselves as we are. Actually, in one of the most famous texts, the uh, Karanya Metasutta, the Buddha actually says there is no better mindfulness in this world than metta, friendliness which includes ourselves, to befriend ourselves. So we're engaging, engaging in this radical act of befriending ourselves when we engage in this process. Yeah. We engage in a radical act of compassion as well in doing this process, engaging in this process. So we are befriending, we're developing that which arises out of that befriending as well. Which again, in the traditions, and probably I'll devote a talk to this, out of that soil of friendliness develops compassion and joy and equanimity. We speak a lot about things like unpleasantness, unhappiness, dukkha, but there's also joy in our minds, and it's tapping into the joy which is here within our minds and within our experience and beginning to appreciate them as well. And finally, there is the movement away from delusion. Actually, literally the word moha in Pali means blindness. 
into wishing to see again. Wishing to actually understand the way things are. Understanding the way things are comes back again to these three marks of existence. Impermanence, dukkha, and not-self. So there's a kind of circularity to that. That in wishing to change, we must understand things the way things are. And in order to do that, we go back to the three marks of existence. So really the path, the path in its inception, the path of mindfulness is the path of beginning to understand where we are and how we are in this world. This is the path of mindfulness. But it's not a cold path because it has this heart to it. I mean that both literally and metaphorically. The heart of this practice is karuna, compassion and kindness and friendliness. This is the heart which stops it from being a cold approach to things. So, we engage in these radical acts of befriending ourselves, these radical acts of beginning to understand, of overcoming the delusion, overcoming the aversion, and overcoming the greed, to live a more wholesome psychology, a more wholesome psychology, a psychology rooted in those virtues. Now, in Buddhist practice, we don't speak about good and bad so much. The words that we use are kusala and akusala, Skillful or wholesome? Unskillful and unwholesome. The unskillful and the unwholesome is that which gives rise to more pain in our lives, more distress and more dissatisfaction. And as I kind of joked about it a little bit last night, we don't keep these dissatisfactions to ourselves. We spread them around. And we make others unhappy. And we infect others with our dissatisfactions, with our distress. So this path is the path of overcoming of dukkha, the overcoming of this almost willful ways of making ourselves unhappy. One of the things perhaps that's most important to consider about letting go is your own unhappiness. We're deeply attached to it, often. Seems very strange, doesn't it? Why would we be attached to our unhappiness? Why would we be attached to our dissatisfaction. And again, part of it comes into that final mark of existence because actually we want to be a self. We want to have an identity. We can create identities out of anything. We can create identities out of our professions. We can create identities out of our roles, you know, parent, lover, mother, father, whatever it might be, or we can create identities out of our misery. And really find it very, very difficult to let that go, as we find it difficult to let go of roles, in both professional roles and family roles, to let those go. So we hold on deeply. So we have two elements which I want to examine and pick up which are really important, and this is what we're actually beginning to work on in mindfulness. And beginning to understand is the depth of our holding on to things. Our reactive patterns. We start to begin to see our reactive patterns very clearly. 
when we bring, if you like, the eye of awareness or the eye of mindfulness to what is going on. And I often say in retreats of this sort, where I'm teaching particularly this, where I'm teaching the four foundations of mindfulness or the four ways of founding mindfulness, here is your mantra for the week. What is going on? This is what we'll use from tomorrow onwards, in a sense. We don't have to use that literally, but in a sense, that is what the inquiry is about. What is going on here for me? What is actually happening? Can I notice patterns of mind which are arising? Am I interested enough? Am I curious enough to want to investigate? Because interest and curiosity are absolute fundamental motivations on this path of mindfulness. I've got to want to understand the wellsprings of my behavior, the wellsprings of why I end up in the samsaric circle, going round and round and round, doing the same sort of things and having the same sort of things happen to me again and again and again. As the author Lawrence Durrell once said, the only thing that we learn from history is that we don't learn anything from history. Yeah. And I think that's very true of personal history. I think he was speaking much more about world history. But particularly in our personal histories, we often don't learn because we're not curious enough. We're not interested enough to look deeply at the wellsprings of what's going on. So this is what we'll be engaging in, in the rest of the retreat. We've done some concentration, you know, tried to settle the mind a little, albeit you know, possibly with great difficulty on the first day. You know, but to try and focus the mind a little with a slightly more focused mind or even just a more settled mind-body, we can now come at the main process of mindfulness now, which is then to open it up in various ways. So we start with the mindfulness of body, the mindfulness of the breathing process again, but here we're going to be inquiring into it in a very different way. In fact, we haven't really been inquiring at all. All we've been using it is as an anchor. That's all. Just keep bringing our mind back and anchoring it in the process of the breath. Now we'll be starting to look at this process and what is going on in relationship to this process. I, what thoughts and sensations are arising for you in your meditative session. Now, let me just try and bring in that last question just to finish off here, which was, this is really about how you live your life and actually gives you the option to ask a question about how do I want to live my life? You know, when we live blind patterns, blindly repetitive patterns, based often on greed, aversion and delusion, we get very similar results, as you've heard me say. I mean, I've said it a number of times now, that we end up in very similar places again and again and again. With the eye of mindfulness, it gives us the opportunity to move away from that psychology of repetition and reaction rooted in greed, aversion and delusion. It's far more complex than that because that psychology I'm referring to comes out as things like miserliness, jealousy, anger and all of the unwholesome emotions that we see. Or do we want it to be much more rooted and stabilized within the psychology which is based on the generosity, the friendliness and the understanding 
So here we have a choice about how we want to live our lives. Do we want to live our lives with a psychology rooted in one dimension or live our lives in at least trying to develop our psychological responses, our ways of being in this world, much more in the sense of those three things. The generosity, the friendliness, and the understanding. The true development of that, the true understanding of those three characteristics of existence, the movement into living in a way which is much more rooted and finally ultimately rooted in those three wholesome roots of our psychology, the Buddha eventually terms nirvana or nirvana. Nirvana is much more common than the word nirvana, which is the Pali version of it. When actually we have brought a cessation to the greed, aversion and delusion. Just to clarify it at the end of this day here, the word nirvana is not a place, it's not a thing, it's not a Buddhist heaven, it's not somewhere we go to. Nirvana or nirvana is simply a verb form in Pali. It means a way of being in this world. It's a way of being rooted in those three wholesome factors. Rooted in generosity, friendliness and understanding. That is the goal of this path of mindfulness in the Buddhist context. It's a big goal. It's about emancipation. It's about emancipation from psychological distress based on roots and being rooted in greed, aversion, and delusion. Okay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.